Ready to dive into the rapidly changing world of work, plumb the depths of the latest workforce trends and hear from top thinkers about the topics most affecting you? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to That HR Podcast from People Management with me, your host, Lauren Brown. This month, I met with Alex Collinson, Policy and Campaign Support Officer at the Trades Union Congress, and John Boyes, Labour Market Economist at the CIPD, to talk about the four-day week. Why the hype? And could it be the future of the working week? I now have other implants, like one in my knee that allows me to feel where the north is, and I'm planning on another one to sense the passage of time, so an organ that will allow me to feel the 24-hour cycle of the rotation of the planet. And I travelled to the CIPD's Festival of Work, where I met a self-proclaimed cyborg, a sausage dog, and Emma Maymore, Mind's Head of Workplace Wellbeing, to talk about health in the digital workplace. And of course, Tim Pointer's back to answer a listener query. All this to come. One of the most interesting innovations in the area of well-being, and something that's captured the public imagination more broadly, is the concept of a four-day working week. It's slowly being taken up by small and large businesses alike, attempting to offer employees a better work-life balance and boost productivity. Recently, the Bank of England's chief economist said a three-day weekend could become the norm within just over 30 years. And in a recent report, nearly three quarters of UK workers claimed they could do their job to the same standard over four days as they do in five. But the Wellcome Trust, which would have been the largest UK organisation to take the leap, has dropped its plans after an unsuccessful trial period. And others are sceptical about the economic impact. Behind the headlines, what are the pros and cons of the four-day week? The myths versus the realities, the practicalities and the principles. I met with Alex Collinson, Policy and Campaign Support Officer at the TUC, and John Boyce, Labour Market Economist at the CIPD, to tackle some of these questions. So obviously we're here to talk about the four-day week. That means different things to different people. It's a concept that we've heard a lot about in the news recently. But starting off, just opening this up to you both, can you kind of explain a little bit about what the four-day week is? I think that if I explain what it isn't, and then perhaps Alex could explain <laughs> what it is, because like for our... Uh, I mean, it seems our, harsh on me. Yeah. <laughs> no, only because for a HR audience, if they hear four-day week, they're probably thinking compressed hours. So that's the same number of hours that you're working, but just pushing them into four days instead of five. But actually, the four-day week that we hear about in the newspapers, in the BBC, it's a slightly different concept. And it's really led as a kind of left-wing campaign. So I think um, by actors like the TUC, so Alex has probably got a, a more succinct definition of what it might be. Yeah, I think four-day week is, is basically just part of an argument that the working week should be a bit shorter. That's not necessarily means a, a rigid idea that you have to work your current schedule, but just cut one day off. It's it's more that you reduce your working hours. If you're currently working like, I guess, a 35, 36 hour week, cut six hours down, maybe work those over four days, maybe spread it out into shorter days. It's just a general argument for a shortening of the working week. So what's the kind of main rationale, do you think, behind that? Do you think it has something to do with employee well-being and about our culture? Because obviously, what you said there, John, about often people see it as it's actually just compressed hours, which many people might argue that actually that might be detrimental because you're working really, really long days and then you've kind of got a three-day weekend. But on the other hand, what you're saying, Alex, is that you're actually losing hours of the week. So what's the kind of rationale there? There's a reason why it's popular, like why it's kind of captured the popular imagination. And I think that's, we're all more conscious of mental health, well-being, stress at work. 
And so this is obviously a very appealing idea, of course, like for a worker, get to get paid the same. That's the the kind of key part of this. You're paid for five days, but you're only working four. So I think that's the rationale. The difficult bit is probably from the employer's side, because ultimately they're losing a day of work. I think there's two pushing drivers behind the reason for it. One of them is well-being, and, and that's part of a wider idea, sorry, of if you're short in the working week, can you still be as, as productive and what are the actual benefits for both the employer and, and the actual workers? And current examples show, like there's examples from New Zealand and, and there's a few others that you can shorten in the working week and, and be just as productive. And that's because when you do shorten the working week with the same pair, what you get is an increase in employee well-being, employees being a bit more confident, being a bit more showing more leadership skills is one of the findings of, of New Zealand Care Study. I guess as well from what you've said, it seems like there is a business case, especially in the private sector in terms of kind of keeping up that productivity. But what are the difficulties kind of across the private sector and the public sector, the demands of different jobs, if this becomes a kind of cultural overhaul, if we do start to really fundamentally rewire the way we think about the working week, surely that's a kind of principle that won't necessarily apply to everyone or that's going to be difficult for certain employers to implement? First of all, I might challenge the idea that there's a business case. The case studies are kind of few and far in between. They're self-selecting companies for whom it's probably convenient to do a four-day working week. And the sort of standards of evidence that you would accept for an intervention like that, there's nothing robust, no kind of really good robust evaluation that I've seen. So I think that's still up for grabs whether there's the business case or not but obviously some of the examples that there are there was a healthcare example in Sweden where they cut nurses hours to a four-day working week and after the trial they stopped it because they found that the cost went up because ultimately then had to hire in more nurses so that's an example of a job where you just have to kind of turn up and it might be the case in more professional services and knowledge work where you can work as and when more flexibly. But uh, if you're a paramedic or you're a surgeon, you probably just need to be there operating. And we're in a grip of a skills crisis right now. Like when you said there, you know, we, they had to kind of hire more nurses. That's not necessarily an option at the moment for a lot of places. So there's that kind of disconnect there as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's a really interesting example in France. They introduced legislation to restrict the working week to 35 hours. And what this meant is that anything worked over 35 hours was paid as overtime. And they found that uh, certain professions like solicitors, lawyers, they were still working over 40 hours a week. That was just kind of what that profession did and I think that if there are areas where people are particularly in demand then their hours go up in fact in many sectors what people are fighting for is not a four-day working week but they're just fighting to get their five-day working week so I mean the TUC is probably aware of this but teaching unions for example they're they're desperately trying to get to a point where teachers can just do that that 40 hours would be great you know if they could get it done from 50 to 40 let alone going from 40 to 30 so yeah tricky when you've got demands on people's labor we've got the tightest labor market for 30 years really low unemployment really high employment so it's difficult to see how we could take 20 percent of the hours out of the economy and still produce the same amount of stuff if that makes sense how would you kind of respond to that then alex i just want by saying it's the early days of hopefully a cultural shift which is when we first shifted to a five-day working week it's not something that we always had it's something that we fought and we won for and we worked it out as a society how to apportion those hours and how best to do it and i think in terms of the issue of how some industries are better suited to this than others i think that's a thing that will only work out when we start actually doing this and start thinking about how we can 
take the benefits and, and profits of uh, changes in technology and changes in the way people work and apportion those more fairly uh, so that everyone can work a few less hours. I don't think the way to solve overworking is to pander and give in to the idea that overworking exists. I think instead it's it's an excuse to start a conversation about how we can change it. Well, that's the thing. I think we've touched on something really interesting there because we all of a sudden would have this extra day of the week and whether people would use that to actually pip their colleagues or their kind of competitors in the talent market to the post by actually working in that time. You know, because it's a wider cultural issue, isn't it, of overworking the way that we differentiate ourselves is by working harder. So what do you think people would do on All that right. extra day? I can tell you what I'd do. If you, <laughs> if you paid me the same amount of money to work four days, what you've just done is you've made my hourly rate 20% more. And if my hourly rate is 20% more, you've made my leisure time 20% more expensive. It's a higher incentive to go and work those hours. I'd work them. I could um, increase my salary by 20%. Thank you very much. So you get people called microeconomists. Economists, they look at how individuals and firms make decisions. And when we look at how people apportion their time between labour and leisure, so how much they work, how much time they spend off, there's something called a backward bending labour supply curve. So usually if you get paid a bit more money, you go, oh, it, it really pays to stay and work, so you pay a bit more. If you win the lottery, you probably go, I'm going to hold back a bit, actually. I'm going to take a few hours off. And quite frankly, if it's an individual preference. And if you're not at the point where you want to rein in, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing all of us are kind of generation rent here, could really do with a 20% pay rise. That's what I'd do with it. Now, the only way you can stop someone from working that extra day is if you impose that they can't work that extra day. And that's kind of, that's quite a limit on someone's freedom. And I'm not sure that that would hold up. Now, on that idea of individual choice, I might also add that you could do a four-day work week. But imagine if you had a sabbatical that lasted a year once every five years. That would be the exact the same over a lifetime. That would be the same as four-day work week. Or imagine you retired eight years early. So you took early retirement. That would be exactly the same. These are other things that are individual choice, but the four-day work week really is just a one-size-fits-all model of how we should apportion our time between labour and leisure. So I think there's some strong challenges to kind of individual freedoms of how much work they they do and how they decide to work. I guess that that's one of the main criticisms that's been levied at it as well, isn't it? Of it's this kind of inflexible flexibility. What would you kind of say to that as an advocate of the four-day week? I think you can see it as rigid if if you believe that what people are suggesting is that we, in our current system, just actively impose some sort of like freedom curtailing four-day week. And I'm, I'm not sure how that's... Sounds a bit George Orwell or yeah, Aldous Huxley freedom. or something. I guess we're currently imposing a very strict five-day week. I think my sort of response to this is that that's how we start a conversation about it. And, and that's how, like, we asked workers what their ideal week is. The most popular answer by far was a four-day working week. There's always going to be people who want to work a bit more for whatever reason, but I think part of the reason they want to work more is because they've got too much work to do. And, and there's cultural reasons that push people to work harder and harder, and that's part of our working culture. And what we're saying is that this is one step, like, we used to have 68-hour weeks, like... This is just the next step in sort of having a conversation as a society about what we want from work, what we want a normal working week to be. And and just considering why we're at the current situation where people feel pushed to work even harder for potentially less money. I think the idea that everyone's hourly word goes up by 20%, it's a really nice idea. Like I think everyone's working time being worth a bit more, being paid more fairly to work four days a week is is lovely. And, and if that's possible due to technology changes or if we can boost productivity by improving things like line management, tech in the workplace, 
training, improving skills, then that sounds ideal to me. And I think glamorising long hours is part of the problem we're currently in. What's really interesting is this kind of issue of pay that we've touched upon. Because obviously, you know, you said, John, that people's rate would go up by 20% just by virtue of shortening that time available. But we're saying on this extra day, would people work more? Is this an issue then more broadly about wages not growing, the fact that so many people are having to do a side hustle to kind of make ends meet? Do you think there's an element of that here? It's absolutely what it's about. So TUC's in the game of getting people's wages up. Unions are. So I've worked for a union, I've worked for an employers association. So I've kind of done this on both sides. What's quite interesting is that Alex talks about if we use technological change as it goes forward. Basically, as we get more productive in the future, if we bank that time, because you can basically you can convert productivity into time or money. You can sort of pay your take your pick but you can't have both Alex is kind of saying well we'll what will keep wages flat for the next 20 years but just slowly reduce the time we spend at work because the truth is that when unions do go in to negotiate pay they might pay lip service to hours but it's all about pay I mean they call it pay claims they kind of they're all about getting that one two three percent trying to get that above inflation and and workers kind of respond to that too so I think when there's a grassroots campaign from the workers up for the unions to demand hours instead of pay I think that's when we'll achieve it and that's sustainable that's kind of how we've done it in the past if you could just shave off imagine every year when you go to negotiate your pay if you say well this year what we're going to do is we're not we're going to take one percent off what we were going to ask for and we're going to say can we just take an hour off a Friday if we just did that every year for a decade we might actually arrive in a place where we've got four-day work week but what you've got to remember is that productivity hasn't moved for 10 years So we're no more able to afford it today than we were 10 years ago. So I think ultimately I've come to the conclusion that the four day work week campaign is really about how we take the pie as it already exists and reapportion it. So it's about inequality and it's about redistribution. And that's not a bad thing. You know, it's fairly good legitimate arguments about redistribution in the economy at the moment. We've kind of touched on the platonic ideal of a four day week where we're paid the same, but we work less. One of the more practical, possibly more widely in place at the moment, versions of a four-day week is the compressed working week. How does that differ from this and would it have the same benefits? Well, there's two things, really. Either you can do a four-day working week and get paid 20% less, and a lot of people do that. So everyone has the right to uh, request flexible working hours. And then the other thing is, like you say, doing the compressed hours. Now, I mean, that sounds pretty tough to me for 10-hour days. So you've got to think about whether that's going to just increase the intensity of work on those given days. I'm not convinced myself. So do you think most organisations would be happy to pay people to fit their work into four days? Or is the more likely route a reduction in salary? And then what are the re- the kind of implications of that? Both are viable in the kind of arsenal of flexible working that you can offer. I think more flexible working is better. So ultimately, if individuals have the opportunity to decide whether they do four days and get paid less or compress their hours if they want to. Having more options is not a bad thing. So if I had the option of compressing my hours into four days, I probably wouldn't choose it. But certainly having it there is very useful. If I approach a different stage in my life, maybe I've got study or something else going on, I might jump at the chance to do that. So more options is better. More flexible working is better. But, you know, certainly this idea of if we go back to the fundamentals, I think that Alex and I agree on, it's talking about if we can boost productivity, then we can pay for this so it's kind of like if we can come up with a plan 
to pay for this, then we'll be good. And what I really liked is that Alex was talking about things like line management and people management. So we all know there's a productivity puzzle. There's a crisis. Productivity hasn't budged for 10 years. And there are all sorts of different explanations. Some people think it's mismeasurement. Some people think it's a few key industries. But more and more people are talking about people management. And this is the Bank of England or the Office for National Statistics. Certainly the CIPD, we've been saying it for four or five years. And now the TUC and Alex talking about line management. I think that's the best thing we can hope for. If we focus on how we can boost productivity by managing people better, then we will have the problem of deciding what we do with that productivity. Then we can have this discussion about, oh, let's do a four-day work week or let's get paid more. Or, But first of all, we've got to get to that stage. Any final thoughts, Alex? I think the argument around tech and automation links quite strongly with this idea of the four-day week in that currently we have the sort of doom-filled idea of, of the future of work because of the potential of tech and automation in, in of replacing jobs. Whereas what we can do instead is, is talk about how we can use that tech and that automation to instead use that to the benefit of workers rather than necessarily just businesses. And one way we can do that is start to think how we can use the profits from automation and technology to sort of redistribute work and, and benefit workers by shortening working hours for everyone. And that's a big conversation and it's something that it's going to take a lot of time to work out fully, but it's, it's something that we should start talking about now and start working out rather than just saying once we've seen a rise, then maybe we'll have a chat about it. We've got to be on the forefront of this. A five-day week isn't a natural thing. It's something that we fought for and it's something that was won by unions and, and working people that wasn't there before. And so we need to continue that fight and not just accept the five-day working week and accept what's currently happening, which is businesses pushing people to work harder and more and longer and the culture that massively promotes that. As you were saying earlier, that if you had an extra chance to work more hours a week, you would. Like, I think that's, that's I wouldn't. Like, personally, I think, <laughs> like, I quite like the amount that I work now. And if anything, it's worth having a conversation about if we can make that a bit less for everyone rather than a bit longer for everyone. Thank you both so much for coming. Cheers. This month, the CIPD's Festival of Work transformed London's stunning Olympia Conference Hall into a colourful patchwork, seeing thousands of people professionals meeting and learning from each other, taking part in yoga and eating ice cream between cutting-edge talks from thought leaders. Two of the most prevalent topics covered were technology and well-being and how people and technology interrelate. First, I caught up with Emma Maymore, Head of Workplace Wellbeing at Mental Health Charity Mind, about her talk on well-being in an increasingly digital world. I was on a panel today at the Festival of Work talking about, you know, working in a digital workplace, um, the advances in technology, the impact that has on people's well-being, both in terms of benefits, but also the challenges and how to really manage that effectively so you optimise the benefits and mitigate the risks. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, the point that you made about pace, because, you know, technology's helped us in terms of our mental well-being, in terms of being able to work flexibly, work remotely, um, that kind of thing, but also it has quickened the way we work. And what was it that you said about the intensity of work and how technology's changed that? Yes, so thinking about working in offices, I think where this is probably 
probably the, the, the biggest issue is around that intensification of work. So emails, how information is shared, how tasks are delegated and how decisions are made, which I don't think is very helpful to do over email, but people love to do it. So it's about trying to look at, okay, email is a tool. It's a way of receiving information. It's a way of receiving tasks. But how can we use it in the most effective and the most lean way? So for me, I try not to have my emails open all the time. When I go in, I try and process it down into what's to um, have on file so I need it for reference what will I read when I get a moment and then what's an action and if it's a two minute action I'll try and clear it there and then but if it's something a bit more complicated or something that involves others I'll put it in an action folder which I'll come back to at another time when I'm in the mindset to then think about right is that part of a bigger project do I need to start a project around it do I need to delegate it to someone if I'm delegating it do I just forward that email on but actually for people I work with closely I have weekly catch ups with them and I save non-urgent things up and I'll delegate it to them when we're meeting so it's about trying to say how can we use it as a tool and not be a slave to it because it does have benefits but it's approach with caution yeah and as an employee I think you know and this is something I've experienced you know in a hot desking open plan office situation where you're kind of trying to balance lots of different things so for example I've been guilty of sending a g-chat or an email to somebody who sat right across from me but that's because everybody else seems to be being quite quiet and we're in a kind of lull of we're having a quiet concentrated time so I actually don't want to disturb anybody else yes so I think there are these kind of layers to it where actually you know it's you're either interrupting each other by email or you're interrupting each other at people's (laughs) desk and I know if I'm getting my head down and I'm focusing to someone then say oh I didn't want to send an email so I'm just coming to your desk well that can feel like you're jumping to the front of the queue and no thank you um (laughs) but we had a system at mind where we had this little furry thing that we would put on our computer and if it was on your your screen it meant I'm approachable and if it's missing don't come near me Um, so (laughs) don't bother (laughs) yes or or some people use their headphones if I've got my headphones on I'm focusing so I think there's just something around us having an open conversation within your team where there's more local of control and saying how do we want to work with each other what are some things we could put in place to help each other I think a lot of this stuff comes from engaging with your staff and getting them to say what would work for them and what doesn't work for them and that will be different for different individuals do you think there are problems with kind of drawing these lines in the sand or trying to create policies around this I do think you need to have some organizational policies and protocols that say this is how we want to work and this is why but to come to that policy and protocol you need to engage your staff in the development of it so there's ownership and then equally even after you then implement that policy and protocol you then need to review is it working in practice do you want to flex it at a team level but that again needs to be agreed at the team level so I don't think you can have absolutes we don't live in a black and white world but I think it's acknowledging that and then saying well how can we address that in a way that works in the most part for everybody and then we flex as we need to. Walking around the festival of work, I stumbled, literally, upon the teeniest, tiniest sausage dog you ever did see. I couldn't resist having a brief chin and tail wag with Ellie and Evie May about how they came to be at the conference and why they think introducing dogs into the workplace is such a good idea. So I'm actually a vet, I work for Purina and we have a Pets at Work scheme and we're here today really to talk about the Pets at Work Alliance because we started having pets in our office in 2003 and since then it's been rolled out to our other offices on site around the country and we're now rolling it out to other businesses as well uh, because you know what a massive difference having dogs in the workplace can make. So how has your company kind of come about to to do this? Because it does seem like a 
a benefit that more and more employees are wanting. Massively. And I think actually it's a huge attraction for recruitment as well. If you know that if you start at a company, you'll be able to bring your dog into the office. Um, I think generally at work, people are a lot happier when they see dogs around and about. It's a great way of meeting people as well. They meet the dog they love your dog and then they finally realize there's someone on the end of the lead as well to talk to so that's always a good thing and so we've always really felt passionately about pets and wanted to start to introduce it to other workplaces as well which is what the alliance is all about because there are so many easy ways that you can make your office dog friendly even if you feel initially oh there's no way around getting involved with it (laughs) actually there really is she's trying to get involved she's a wiggle worm my experience has been extremely positive in absolutely every respect there are a very very small number of people in our office that really don't like dogs that much or have allergies and for those we've ensured that there are a large number of places in the office which are not dog friendly so for example we'll have a lift that's dog friendly and a lift that's non-dog friendly we'll have meeting rooms that are dog friendly and meeting rooms that are non-dog friendly and then the canteen on obviously those kitchen areas are non-dog friendly too so there's loads of places I can go with Evie but there are also loads of places that if actually you're not a huge fan of dogs you can avoid them so what is the impact on productivity being then is it a distraction or does that kind of wear off quite quickly it wears off very quickly and for me I'm a lot more productive a because I feel a lot happier and b because actually it means I can stay that bit longer at work without minding whatsoever because I don't need to rush home to take my dog out for a walk or worry that they've been left on their own for too long It also means that actually I now have more of a lunch break than I would have done previously because I will take her for a little walk at lunch and just having that fresh air means I go back to the office feeling a lot fresher and ready to crack on with the afternoon's work. So productivity-wise, it's actually been hugely beneficial overall. Neil Harbison, a self-proclaimed cyborg artist, was not your usual closing keynote. An antenna which wobbles when he talks protrudes from the base of his skull up and over his head. After an action-packed two days at the Festival of Work, he spoke to delegates about how humans and technology can merge to unlock new possibilities. I was interested in sensing more than my biological senses. I now have other implants, like one in my knee that allows me to feel where the north is, and I'm planning on another one to sense the passage of time, so an organ that will allow me to feel the 24-hour cycle of the rotation of the planet around my head, so it will be an organ for the sense of time that should allow me to create uh, time illusions and to modify my perception of time. I was not allowed to work with an antenna, so I guess diversity needs to be addressed. There will be uh, workers with new organs and new senses. There will be people with senses that are not traditionally human, and this will have an impact in the way we work, because it will have an impact in almost any aspect of society. So uh, I guess... Diversity will be one of the subjects that we will have to face as a society because what we now call diversity has nothing to do with the diversity we will see in the next decades. People with unique senses and unique organs will be walking around the street and will have jobs that might need the use of these new senses and new organs. In my case, having infrared or ultraviolet perception can allow me to work in specific things that other people might not be able to work, but you can actually decide what senses you want to have if you want to work on a specific field. So it opens up a lot of um, questions. It might change 
the, the type of jobs now uh, workers use technology. If you look, everyone is using technology, but in the future we won't be using technology because we will be the technology. So you won't have to need, you won't need a, an element mm. between yourself and the job. Instead of using tools, using the internet or technology as a tool or a communication system, we will be using our own senses and organs as a communication system or as a way of, or, or as a tool. So that's the difference. I think it's much better. I think if, if we can focus on reality and nature if we are the technology, otherwise technology is always in between, like now. This is the change. I think technology will become biological and w this is already starting to happen mm. in a very primitive way like this. But this will soon be 3D printed with my own DNA so it will be organic. Mm. We'll be able to, instead of using chips, change ourselves genetically. So it will become much more organic. So technology will become biological and that's, I think, the subject that we need to start addressing. The ethics is that we are destroying the planet because we are using technology as a tool and we are changing the planet in order to live better and that's not ethical. Uh, we should be changing ourselves. We shouldn't be using air conditioning or heaters when it's cold or hot. We shouldn't change the temperature of the planet. We should be changing our own temperature so we should create organs that can allow us to change our own temperature. We should have night vision so that we don't use artificial light. We should modify and design ourselves instead of designing and modifying the planet. So hopefully in the 20s and 30s, society will start seeing it as ethical to, to modify oneself. And I think it will, it will be ethical. It will be seen as ethical and we just need to talk about it. And now here to answer a listener question is Tim Pointer. So Tim, I've got a very ambitious person here for you now. It's kind of a, an unusual problem. So this listener has said, I know my company needs an HR director and believe it should be me. Good on you. Yeah. I think if my skills and ability in being able to drive this business forward and achieve its potential through its people were finally recognised, I'd thrive and so would the business. I'm realistic and know this isn't going to happen given the recently appointed MD um, has been at the company for over 30 years and perpetuates a 1980s style corrosive culture daily. I just don't want to walk away yet and feel there's more I want to do here. I love this company, but I'm starting to feel like a big fish in a small pond. That whole letter was going so well until the middle point, wasn't it? It was like <laughs> it was full of positivity. I'm going to do this. I'm going to grab this. I'm going to make this happen. But the realism then kicked in, which is exactly the word that our correspondent used. My word, there's a number of pieces here. I think one of the first things are see the job that needs to be done. Do that job. Don't ask for anyone's permission. If you see an opportunity to focus on furthering the business's performance, then look at those projects, highlight those projects, work with the MD to demonstrate the value of them. And the second piece I'd say is get to know that new MD, perhaps give her or him an opportunity to demonstrate that they can change and see what happens because they're in a new role. They're looking to demonstrate that they can step up, step up into this position and you have an opportunity to help them make that shift. They're not going to be quite so sure of themselves because they haven't done this job before and will be looking potentially to partner in a different way. So really understand what metrics the MD is being asked to deliver against. Understand what great performance looks like to the MD 
and then work out how you would want to deliver those in your way, in your style, and with your people-first approach. Because I would recommend that if you can deliver those outcomes with your style of HR strategy, the MD will be focused on the outcomes and the performance that you're creating. And hey, if they have some questions about how you're doing it, they'll be metrics-driven at the end of the day. So not feeling like there's absolutely no way. There was a kind of note of defeat in the middle of that query, wasn't there? So you think, go ahead and do it anyway. Yeah, there was a bit of recovery at the end, wasn't there? It was, it was a case of like, yes, 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 yes. I can't see how I can do it here, but I'm, I love this business. And I love that. You know, the first thing I'd ask for is passion, that desire to do a great job, that belief in the future of the business. That gives you so much energy to go through the gears and find the stamina to do some hard work. And that phrase that's used I'll thrive and so would the business wow that's so powerful so if you can find that way in a business that you know well with colleagues who know and understand and respect you then that's a greater opportunity for me with all those knowns than finding another role somewhere else see what you can do in an environment that you know and are so passionate about so give that MD a chance demonstrate how you can deliver against their definition of success and then reappraise in six to 12 months time and that's it from this edition of that ahr podcast thanks to all of our guests and of course to our producer anushka tate at rethink audio you can subscribe to the podcast on apple podcasts google podcasts soundcloud and on our website peoplemanagement.co.uk go ahead and rate us we'd love to see your comments Unfortunately, this will be my last podcast, so I wanted to say thank you to our listeners and that I hope you've enjoyed our time together. It's been an absolute blast, so from me, cheerio. Cheerio.